Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Why do you seem so scared? All I wanted to do was play with you. Please come and play with me. I'm so lonely. You're not afraid of the dark, are you? Don't be afraid. Come with me. I will show you where I play hide and seek. Do you want to play hide and seek? You hide and I'll find you. This story deals with the tragic demise of eight-year-old Victoria Lynn Stafford, known to her loved ones most commonly as Tori. It is also the story of Terry Lynn McClintock and Michael Rafferty, both of whom are the perpetrators of the savage act that brought about the demise of Tori Stafford. Chapter 1. Terry Lynn McClintock. Terry Lynn McClintock was born in 1990. Woodstock, Ontario, Canada is the town of her birth. Her mother was a drug addict. She worked as a prostitute and a stripper. She worked in all the peeler bars in the area. Given the circumstances of her life at the time, she knew she couldn't care for a child in the way that would ensure its well-being. The tawdry environment of her professional life didn't help either. Nevertheless, the woman she handed the baby over to was her friend Carol Sanford. Sanford was also a stripper and a prostitute. Carol raised the baby by herself for a while. Relatives and neighbors assisted her when necessary. She supported herself and Terry Lynn with the money she made through exotic dancing. She danced under the name Breeze, alternating with another moniker, Victoria. A monthly disability stipend supplemented her income. If Carol wasn't equipped to provide Terry Lynn with a happy childhood, it was because she didn't have one either. She experienced every kind of abuse. She attempted to raise two other children before Terry Lynn came along. 
she lost custody of both. Despite the dead end of this life and the OxyContin addiction she was beset by, she fell in love with a long-haul truck driver. His name was Rob McClintock. They got married. Soon after, they filed to adopt Terry Lynn. The odds weren't good. Carol was not only a stripper and a prostitute, but she had a criminal record. She had been considered an unfit mother of her two last children. Her sister filed a legal complaint, insisting that Carol was not a suitable candidate to adopt Terry Lynn. Her drug addiction was known to the courts. Whatever expectations they had, they were awarded custody of Terry Lynn. However capable as parents Carol and Rob were, Carol's parents compensated for their shortcomings wherever they could. They adored Terry Lynn and doted on her. She may not have been a blood relation, but they didn't care. They loved and accepted her as their granddaughter. They remember her as sweet with an open smile. She loved the outdoors. Rob stepped up, doing all he could do to be a decent father. The first few years of Terry Lynn's life were as normal as can be. There was love and stability, despite the backgrounds of her biological mother and adoptive mother. This situation did not last. Like all long-haul truckers, Rob was away for weeks at a time. Carol didn't enjoy following somebody else's rules after having been single and at variance with the law for so long. Carol began to drink to excess. She was also taking OxyContin in earnest. Deeply disappointed, Carol took Terry Lynn, three years old, to begin anew. The next time Rob saw Terry Lynn was during child support hearings when she was five years old. Though he never saw her again, he paid child support until she became an adult. Carol introduced Terry Lynn to a world that was tawdry, sordid, and a compromise to her safety and well-being. Throughout the rest of her childhood, Terry Lynn was used as an object for the fulfillment of sexual gratification by grown men. It began before she was 10 years old. She was abused emotionally, mentally, physically, and sexually. There was no indication that she could survive by abiding by mainstream society's rules. She was surrounded at all times by people who were amoral. In order to survive, she had to fight her way through life. She faced a threat at every turn. Terry Lynn's childhood is marked by frequent spells of neglect and abuse. She stayed in numerous foster homes. She came under the care of children's aid. She went to reform schools. Carol did whatever it took to make money. She had Terry Lynn to support, but she was also still an addict. This meant that from the age of five onwards, Terry Lynn suffered repeated episodes of molestation and rape. In an interview with the Toronto Star, Carol said she put a stop to the sexual abuse once she found out it was happening. She went on to say she didn't find out about it until she asked Terry Lynn when she was in her mid-teens. By then, Terry Lynn found her own ways to cope. Carol coped with hardships by moving. She escaped in the most literal way possible. They would move to another town so she could dance at another strip club. They would be situated in another dodgy neighborhood, surrounded by a new coterie of drug dealers and users. The moving was constant, multiple times in a year. Carol had relatives in Strathroy and Brampton. Other towns they lived in included Guelph, 
Woodstock, Perry Sound, Muskoka, Cambridge, Hamilton, and North Bay. Terry Lynn often started at a new school at least once a year. Everything would be okay at first, but soon her peers would discover that Terry Lynn's mother was a stripper. From there, the bullying would begin. Her attendance record was checkered with frequent absences. Terry Lynn began experimenting with substance abuse when she was eight years old. She partook of whatever she found around the house. She started by smoking marijuana. From there, she tried other drugs. As the drug use became more frequent, her attendance and academic performance suffered. She had trouble maintaining friendships since she was constantly moving. She was not close to her mother. She never had the opportunity to form healthy and happy attachments that would contribute to her overall well-being. She was used to abuse and a mother who was preoccupied with drugs. When Carol and Terry Lynn were home together, the environment couldn't have possibly been less appropriate. Death metal played on the stereo at all hours of the day. The musician whose music was played most often was called Necro. As drugs moved in and out of the home, so did sketchy people buying and selling. One of the customers was Tara McDonald. She was Tori Stafford's mother. She was contending with her own addiction to OxyContin. She was troubled in other ways as well. Both Carol and Terry Lynn sold drugs to Tara. The money Carol made as wages only afforded them a home in the worst section of any town they lived in. They left many possessions behind when they left, taking only essentials. Their homes were sparsely furnished and otherwise bare. The only resources plentiful in their homes were drugs and men. As Terry Lynn got older, her tolerance for abuse and neglect wore thin. She was tired of being raped, abused, and going hungry. She was sick of being used and neglected by Carol. Determined to make her own way, Tara Lynn ventured out into the street. She became more and more embittered and misanthropic with every passing day. At one point, these hard feelings were externalized. They mutated into cruelty. While still a child, she put a small dog in a microwave and turned it on. She stopped it when the dog cried out in pain. When Carol came home and saw the dog was in distress, Terry Lynn told her it had a fight with another dog. The dog was so deeply injured, it was put down. When Terry Lynn was 16, she assaulted Carol so viciously that Carol was blinded in one eye. She attacked her again in less than a year. Canadian Children's Aid created a file for Terry Lynn when she was seven years old. Many of their judgment calls regarding McClintic have been criticized. She was placed in two foster homes because of the violence she suffered when Carol was under the influence of drugs. Terry Lynn's criminal record was first filed when she was 10 years old. Her first offense consisted of stealing toys from a hardware store. Between the ages of 11 and 12, she was placed in a foster home after reporting Carol for being abusive. A year later, police observed Terry Lynn running from Carol in the middle of the street. Carol was arrested for public intoxication. A few months later, a man who was Carol's boyfriend and highly inebriated at the time was visiting one night. He didn't get along with Terry Lynn that night. 
he's threatened to slit her throat. He never made good on the threat. He was prosecuted for that offense. Terry Lynn's playbook for life reflected the example her mother set. She avoided the dangers she would fall prey to if she ever allowed herself to appear vulnerable. Anger was the only emotion it was safe for her to express openly. There was power in anger. It's not as easy to gain power over a victim if they're angry and lashing out. Along with marijuana and Oxycontin, she ingested other mind-altering substances. Cocaine, morphine, ecstasy, or whatever else she could get her hands on. She dropped out of school while she was in grade 8. It was at that time when she experienced a drug overdose. It was so impactful, it damaged her memory. By the time she entered her early teens, she was a consummate drug addict. She also became extremely violent toward anyone with designs on victimizing her. Terry Lynn received her first charge for a violent crime when she was 15. The victim was the same man who threatened to slit her throat two years earlier. It was also back then when he battered Carol so severely, he broke the bones of her face. He asked Terry Lynn to move out of his home. She flew into a rage and lashed out at him. A year later, Terry Lynn was in a youth detention center. Living in its atmosphere with other violent girls did not provide the rehabilitation she needed. It only nurtured her blossoming instinct to wreak harsh physical brutality on anyone who posed a threat to her. She got into many fights, many of which blemished her permanent record and put her chances of release into jeopardy. She attacked one girl, then four months later, there was another assault. The latter incident was unprovoked. Terry Lynn severely injured the girl's head and face. She assaulted three other girls before her release. On one occasion, she knocked a girl to the ground and kicked her in the head repeatedly. When Terry Lynn was released, she moved in with Carol. Carol gave up stripping and relied on disability payments. They struggled more than ever to keep money coming in. They would sometimes sell their OxyContin prescriptions for money. Terry Lynn was anxious to make money and took the situation into her own hands. Woodstock, Ontario bills itself as the friendly city. It belies all the violent crime that is committed on its streets. It is remembered more for that by people like Terry Lynn McClintock than for being the dairy capital of Canada. With her own violent tendencies, Terry Lynn fit in very well. One day in 2007, she identified two men who appeared to be easy targets for armed robbery. They were vulnerable, and she spotted that quality from a mile away, given her background. She put a bandana around her face and tried to rob them at knife point. One of them engaged her in a violent confrontation. She stabbed him in his back. There were witnesses, and they called the police. When they arrived, they pointed their guns at her. She attacked them with the knife. She managed to hit one of them in the head before she was taken into custody. Terry Lynn was sentenced to a lengthier stay at the youth detention center. She had toughened up even more before she started her sentence. She took this new opportunity to reinforce her image as a brute, seriously. Though she still dressed and groomed to achieve femininity, she was very physically strong, with defined muscles. 
This was a product of her dedication to a demanding exercise routine. This consisted of doing four to five hundred push-ups. She would do 120 pull-ups. She honed her fighting skills by boxing her mattress every day. She used her new image, with all its anger and empowerment, to bully other girls. She would steal their medication, food, clothing, and anything else that appealed to her. Some of her fights were born of an unprovoked attack. Most of the inmates were intimidated by her. They didn't dare trigger her dark side. She wasn't going to be a victim anymore, and she wanted the world to know that. She mostly kept to herself, but did make one friend whose experience was like hers. That girl was released much sooner, but they kept in touch. Terry Lynn exchanged letters with another inmate with a similar sensibility. They would write graphic descriptions of evil acts. The incidents never took place, but expressing these violent fantasies in writing was a form of art therapy for Terry Lynn. Though most of these fantasies were born out of a desire for revenge, some of them involved random strangers. This wasn't just about punching someone in the head a few times. She wanted to torture and mutilate anyone who had wronged her. As far as the strangers went, she supposedly would have done it just for fun. She hated some of the inmates and staff and detailed the many ways in which she would make their last moments on earth a living hell of abuse and dismemberment. At first, people needed to give her a reason to hate them. After a while, the hate stood alone. She was a convert to the empowerment that only hatred can bestow. She decided the only way to stay safe was to deny the rights of others to their own safety. One of these letters was featured as evidence in her trial. It opened with this line, I feel like a vampire in heat. From there, she described her dreams of torture and murder. She wanted to tear people apart with her bare hands. Another quote from this letter, I just want to kill someone, just see a little blood. Fucking curb stomp some bitch. She yearned to go on a killing spree. She described the many ways in which she tormented other inmates and didn't spare her friend the details. In another letter, she detailed an intricate plan to murder an inmate's entire family following her release. She wanted to shoot a pregnant inmate in the face. It didn't exactly help her case when a letter was produced describing how she would enjoy kidnapping someone. The abduction was only the tip of the iceberg in this fantasy. She would mutilate their body, smash their skull to pieces, and reassemble the components like a puzzle. She would want the victim to live long enough to experience pain from the beginning of the attack to the moment of their demise. In these letters, Terry Lynn was fond of referring to herself and her friend as murderous bitches and real motherfucking G's. She would include some quotes from her favorite musician, horrorcore rapper Necro. It was punctuated with a three-pointed crown, the symbol of the street gang, the Crips. Chapter 2, Michael Rafferty. Michael Rafferty is the youngest of three sons. He was born on October 26, 1980. Similar to Terry Lynn's family situation, his family moved frequently while he was a child. Coverage of other details of his childhood has been limited. He spent a few years living with his aunt and uncle in the town of Drayton, near Kitchener. The story he gave to many of the girls he dated was that he was from the Yukon, 
Another featured him living in a farmhouse. Official records reveal that he attended a secondary school in Richmond Hill called Alexander Mackenzie. Besides that, there is very little in the way of official documentation of his life. He always had a story to tell to women. After high school, he moved to the Queen Street West District of Toronto. It is a trendy area for 20-somethings. Many of the city's nightclubs are located near that intersection. He studied culinary arts in college. When he dropped out of college, he worked a number of jobs, all temporary. He lived in Guelph for a time. He worked for a landscaping company. He worked at a meat packing plant. At this point in his life, he acquired a car. He loved the car and cleaned it obsessively. He took it to car washes multiple times a week to wash it and vacuum the interior. He loved to go on aimless drives with little regard for where he would end up. He had a preference for quiet back roads. One of his ex-girlfriends, Rachel Dywell, testified in his trial that they engaged in this activity together. Michael lived off the women in his life. Though it may not come across in his mugshot, he has been described by the women he dated as charismatic and gentlemanly. He came across as responsible, clean-cut, and friendly. Truthfully speaking, this was a facade. He was actually a highly skilled con artist. He juggled multiple girlfriends. He persuaded them all to give him money, drugs, and a home. In exchange, among other things, he promised them loyalty. Women came into his life through a revolving door, as they would all figure out eventually that they had been deceived. He quit job after job while his girlfriends quit him one after another. In early 2008, his luck ran out. He was single, unemployed, and homeless. With no alternative, he moved in with his mother, Deborah Murphy, and her boyfriend, David Riddall, where they were living in Woodstock. He briefly lived with a girl he dated, but it didn't last long, and he moved back into his mother's house. At the age of 27, living with his mother and stepfather didn't trouble him at all. He would spend entire days sitting in his car and listening to Necro and similar musical acts. He would drive up and down the street blasting music. His mother's neighbors complained about it. His mother and her boyfriend weren't so excited to have him around. Michael's relationship with his mother was more like friendship. They would gossip about their relatives. They sent emails back and forth. They both did drugs and shared referrals when they needed some. At times, one would buy drugs for the other. When relations weren't so good between them, they had shouting matches that occasionally emerged from out of the house and were broadcast on the street. His stepfather didn't like him. He told him he was a freeloader. He also pointed out that when Michael did have money, he spent it all on clothing, electronics, his car, and drugs. Michael joined a number of online dating sites. He was mostly active with the sites that were oriented toward facilitating casual encounters. His description on the profiles was as a romantic at heart who prioritized friendship. After romancing the girls online, he would arrange a meetup. Sometimes he would date them for a short time. With others, he would have sex a few times and desert them. Others would fall for him and he would use them for money and other things. He always promised a long-term relationship. Whatever the girl idealized as a perfect man, he would embody those characteristics as a manufactured surrogate. 
One woman who fell under his spell irrevocably was named Charity Spritzing. At his trial, she testified that he persuaded her to become an escort. He convinced her to give him all the money she made, this despite being the mother of five children. She has estimated she made $16,000 for him in six months. Like all the other women he dated, she was under the impression that he was faithful. They discussed marrying and adding more children to her life. He doused that fire with gasoline for as long as he could fool her. He lived with Charity for about two years. He used her computer frequently. The data procured from the hard drive was used as evidence for the investigation of his role in Tory Stafford's death. The following web search criteria was found in Michael Rafferty's account. Underage rape. Child pornography. Necrophilia. Escort services. The Crown Attorney found the search headings inadmissible in court. Therefore, the jury was unaware that these subjects were among Rafferty's interests. Michael could juggle as many as seven women at once, sometimes more. He would take money one of them gave him and spend it on another. Some of these women testified in court detailing his abnormal sexual proclivities. He persuaded one woman to sign a release form, giving him consent to strangle her during sex. Another reported that he drugged and raped her, though she did not press charges. Some of them were uncomfortable with his conduct around their children. Despite these concerns, they continued to give him money, sex, drugs, and whatever else they had that he wanted. He always had a knack for manipulating women into doing what he wanted them to do. Michael Rafferty was a confirmed drug addict. In 2009, he told an undercover cop he had to take 5 8-milligram OxyContin or 20 to 30 Percocets a day to feel normal. Not to get high, but to avoid nausea, vomiting, and shaking. To get high, he would have to take several more. Michael Rafferty was secretive about his lifestyle and sexual proclivities. Unlike Terry Lynn McClintock, he didn't have a criminal record before he was named as a prime suspect in the murder of Tory Stafford. He had everybody fooled. Chapter 3. A Match Made in Hell Michael Rafferty treated Terry Lynn differently than the other girls. It may have been her gratitude for the smallest of kindnesses that drew her to him. She hadn't been the recipient of much kindness in her life. His addiction was at its apex when they met. He was no longer content to swallow OxyContin. He was injecting two to a line 80 milligrams every day. He ate as many Percocets he could get his hands on. He usually got them from Barb Armstrong, an ex-girlfriend he knew from the meatpacking plant. Terry Lynn's affection for Michael grew, as did her loyalty. She had her own sources of OxyContin. Knowing he could reap personal gain from his relationship with her, he was smitten. For a change, he was faithful to a woman. First his favorite girlfriend, then his only. As she testified during his trial, he said all the right things. It felt really good. In 2009, they went on a date to a movie theater. Once the credits finished and the last stranger left the auditorium, they had sex in the theater. They say men fall in love with what they see, while women fall in love with what they hear. Throughout the encounter, Rafferty held Terry Lynn's face in his hands, looked deep into her eyes, and told her 
He couldn't stand the thought of waking up without her. He suggested they adjourn to a hotel room. Terry Lynn yearned to be loved all her life, and despite her hard-boiled exterior, she was helpless in Michael's clutches. She craved affection, attention, and love. He craved OxyContin and a girlfriend who was eager to do anything he did, follow him wherever he went. She fell in love with him and did her utmost to please him. One of the complaints Michael Rafferty's girlfriends had about him was that his libido was insatiable. None of them could keep him satisfied for long. With Terry Lynn, he met his match sexually. Not only was her enjoyment of sex commensurate, but she was open to anything he wanted to try. They also did OxyContin together. She supported them financially to some degree by selling it. Though they were equals in many respects, he was still able to control and manipulate her. They spent money and drove around in his car for hours. Throughout the honeymoon phase of a relationship, people sometimes idealize their partner. They either ignore their faults or are blind to them entirely. Though Terry Lynn had entered this phase in her relationship with Michael, some of the things he said and did struck her as odd. They would pass the home of a woman who was single and lived alone, and he would point out to her how easy it would be to break into her home, rape her, and kill her. Terry Lynn got her first glimpse at his violent side when he strangled her during sex to the point where he choked all the eroticism out of their encounter. Twelve other witnesses disclosed that he strangled them during sex to a point where it was more than they could tolerate. Though it was often done with consent, not all of them were willing to go along with it. Perhaps he thought Terry Lynn could handle it since she came across as strong and tough. They met at New Orleans Pizza Parlor in Woodstock, Ontario. It was February of 2009. They were 10 years apart in age, with her at 18 and him at 28. They began to talk while they waited for their food. She watched him talking on his cell phone while waiting in line. He told the person he was talking to that he was lost and wasn't sure where he was. Terry Lynn interrupted the call and told him where he was. Her helpful offering of directions and the conversation it engendered soon became flirtatious. Michael called her, quote, a cute number as he hung up his phone. He offered her a ride home. She was delighted by the offer and accepted. In her driveway, the pizza went cold as they sat in the car. He wrote his phone number on the pizza box. They talked about OxyContin, partying, and they discovered they had a lot in common. They were both fans of Necro. He suggested they take a spin around Woodstock and Ingersoll. She was amenable to the idea, and they went. They talked some more about drugs, movies, and other things they enjoyed doing. They had sex in the car. According to a statement given as part of court records, she said he climbed on top of her and strangled her at some point while they had sex, but then stopped and drove her home. She returned home with a cold pizza and a phone number belonging to Mike, written on the box. She still didn't know his last name. Terry Lynn never called guys the next day after a date. She was used to men taking advantage of her. She didn't want to avail herself to be used for sex and then abandoned. She didn't expect to hear back from Mike again. Besides, she had plenty to contend with just living in her mother's home 
with all its drug-fueled chaos. To her surprise, Michael turned up at her house a few days later. He asked her why she hadn't called. She was touched to discover that he had been thinking about her. He missed her. Their relationship grew from that moment. She became his girlfriend and drug dealer, though they were both reluctant to refer to the other as a girlfriend or boyfriend. Michael was new to the area. He was astounded by how many contacts she had in Woodstock's drug scene. She seemed to him to be too young to be so well connected to that world. He wasn't yet aware of Carol's unwholesome influence on Terry Lynn. For the next few weeks, he would drop by Carol's house and Terry Lynn would sell him some OxyContin. They would inject it together, smoke weed, and have sex. At some point during this period, they went to the movies and spent the rest of the night in a motel. No one else ever invested this much time and effort in their relationship with Terry Lynn. For the first time in her life, she felt something close to love. To quote her statement in court once again, he said all the right things. It felt nice. Neither would admit they were in a relationship, yet they were virtually inseparable at this point. He didn't have the time to philander anymore because he was almost always with Terry Lynn. She hung on his every word. He was her new addiction. He told her she was beautiful, clever, and important. His other girlfriends had bailed on him for one reason or another. Terry Lynn couldn't get enough of him. She was more than happy to please him by getting him drugs, riding around Woodstock with him, and doing whatever else he wanted. She allowed him to choke her during sex and didn't complain. He shared with her his darkest, sickest fantasies, and she not only accepted them, but encouraged them. If she wasn't on board with some of them, she kept it to herself. Nothing was too sinister or bizarre for her. She was unshockable. Nothing he could confess to could disturb her. After she was arrested, she told police about how, as their relationship deepened from physical intimacy to a deep emotional bond and the trust that came with it, he became more and more open about his sexual proclivities. It came out as they drove around. Aside from pointing out the homes of women he would like to rape and murder, he would also drive by elementary schools, parks, and other spaces that were frequented by children. He would slow the car down and point out one specific child, usually a blonde-haired girl. His fantasy would be to abduct her, rape her, and murder her. As he would say to Terry Lynn, Look at her. Someone like her would be perfect. It would be so easy. We need to get one really young. The younger, the better. Easier to manipulate. At first he said it half-jokingly, and Terry Lynn believed it was nothing but a joke. She assumed he was just saying it to shock her. This situation was shifted into overdrive one day. He asked her if it would be, quote, weird if he were to ask her seriously about kidnapping someone. That was all it took to convince her he was serious about it. She told police that it was at that point where she started to ignore the things he said she knew were wrong. She so badly wanted to keep him because no other man had wanted to stay with her. She hoped that his ruminations and proposals involving kidnapping would go away. They never did. It only got worse. To quote Terry Lynn, he would say things like, You're not going to do it, are you? You're too scared, aren't you? 
For months, he would ask her every day if she would assist him as he followed through with his fantasy. Every day was the day, and all he needed was her consent and assistance. Chapter 4, Tori Stafford. Victoria Elizabeth Marie Stafford was born on July 15, 2000, in Woodstock, Ontario. She became known as Tori to her loved ones. On the morning of April 8, 2009, Tori put on a Hannah Montana jacket, green t-shirt, and a denim skirt. For an added touch, she borrowed a pair of butterfly earrings from her mother. She wanted to wear makeup, and her mother allowed her to wear a small amount of blush and some lip gloss. They had just moved into a new home. As a housewarming party, Tori had plans to celebrate in her bedroom by hosting a movie night with her best friends. She put on her black and white shoes, took up her brat's purse, and left for school. It was the first time she was permitted to walk to and from school alone. Tori is remembered by her friends and family as bubbly and precocious, with a vivid imagination. She lived with her mother, Tara McDonald, her stepfather, James Gorris, and her older brother, Darren Stafford. Tori had a cute smile that was known to be contagious. Even the crustiest of her neighbors couldn't help but fall under her spell when she smiled at them. She had a big personality. She alternated between bold and brash, timid and shy. To quote her mother, she was spunky, funky. One minute she'd be wearing a dress with pantyhose and tappy shoes, and she was all dressed up with her hair did and everything, and she'd be outside digging up worms and bugs. She was highly verbose, so much so that she was late home from school several times because she stopped to talk and play with her friends. Though she was precocious and energetic, she never came across as the type who was vulnerable to the pedophiles, baby snatchers, and other people who singled out small children for abuse. She just seemed too strong-minded to be manipulated by such people. Tori was loved and adored by all who were close to her. Things were not as rosy at home as her disposition may have suggested. Tara McDonald struggled with her addiction to OxyContin for years. She risked arrest as she bought the drug constantly from Terry Lynn McClintic and other contacts. In fact, her dog Cosmo was mated with the McClintic's dog for the purpose of breeding. Tori loved Cosmo. She spent hours with him. She called him her bestest friend. She would dress him and rub his paws. Tori arrived at school that day as jovial and giggly as ever. Jennifer Griffin Morell was the teacher of Tori's mixed grade two and three class. She remembers Tori as being full of energy and mischief that day. Tori approached her after recess to ask for permission to go home and change her tights. She told her she had fallen into a mud puddle. After an investigation, Ms. Morell found out she didn't fall so much as deliberately jump into it. She didn't allow her to go home, insisting she learn from the experience by letting them dry, which would happen after a brief period of discomfort. The class sang O Canada, studied English, arithmetic, and spent part of the day learning about plants on computers. During art class, Tori entertained her classmates by cutting the decals from her t-shirt. This shenanigan earned her a timeout. 
Morell described Tori as being a mother hen type to her fellow classmates, consistent with her caring nature. The last time Miss Morell saw Tori Stafford was 3.25 after the bell rang. Tori forgot the butterfly earrings in class and ran back to retrieve them. She waved goodbye to Miss Morell and left. Chapter 5, Play Date with the Devil Outside the school, Laura Perry stopped by to pick up her son Jacob. He was one of Tori's classmates. She observed Tori walking by. She was talking to a young woman wearing a thick, fluffy white coat. Laura testified in the trial that something seemed a little sketchy. She had never seen Tori with the woman in question, and had never seen the woman at the school before. The timestamp on the nearby surveillance camera marked the time, 3.32. The morning of that day was typical for Terry Lynn McClintock. There was no food in the house. After smoking some pot, she went to a church and obtained a voucher for groceries. She went to an employment center to fill out paperwork as a measure to find a job. She went shopping for groceries, which was captured on a security camera. After returning home, she shot herself up with OxyContin. Soon after, Michael Rafferty knocked on her door. They got in his car and drove out to score drugs. After procuring their substances of choice, they took a detour to do something they had never done before. Whenever Michael shared with her his dark sexual fantasies, she would ignore him, and eventually he would shut up about it. His desire to rape and torture a little girl had become an obsession. Terry Lynn would egg him on sometimes, but only to please him. She claimed in court that she never took him seriously. She said she thought it was connected to bravado and the byproduct of neurological damage done by drugs. She said she assumed he was trying to impress her by coming across as edgy. She wanted to find a way to keep him as he had been her best boyfriend and she wanted to maintain what they had together. This sort of thing was going on as they drove past Oliver Stephen Public School. He had driven them past it before. As usual, it was when children were leaving. He slowed the car down to the point where it was almost idling. He asked Terry Lynn if she was, quote, going to do it today. She said, do what? She knew what he meant, but hoped he meant something else. It was wishful thinking. His response, I knew it. I knew you were all talk and no action. She was triggered by those words. He manipulated her as always. She took it as an insult, and after her experience with abuse, it was something she could not abide. She would do his bidding to prove her own worth, at any cost. She got out of the car and approached the first girl she laid eyes on. It was Tori Stafford. Michael parked his car around the corner and waited. He had given Terry Lynn explicit instructions on how to carry out this scenario, and unfortunately, it was followed to a T. Terry Lynn bent down so that she would come face to face with Tori. She asked her, Do you know what a Shih Tzu is? She was friendly and smiled at her. Tori, consistent with her nature, smiled back and nodded. She knew what it was because her dog was a Shih Tzu. Terry Lynn said, well, have you seen one around here because my little girl's has run off? This remark was punctuated with a searching glance around. She furled her brow and pursed her lips to look worried. Knowing how hurtful it is to lose a dog, Tori searched the surrounding area herself. 
Terry Lynn introduced her coup de gras. I can show you just what she looks like. I have two of her pups in the car. They will be hungry and sad if I don't find her. Would you like to see them? Tori was eager to help and agreed to accompany Terry Lynn to the car. As they drew near to the car, Michael, agitated and irate, shouted, Hurry up! Seconds later, tiny little Tori Stafford, eight years old, was a tiny heap on the back floorboard, hidden underneath Michael's coat. Michael was bursting with excitement. This was a scenario he fantasized about almost all his life. It was the darkest fantasy of them all, and he couldn't wait to milk it for all it was worth. His first order of business, though, was to drive to Guelph to meet with a drug dealer to buy Percocets. Tori begged to be released along the way. She promised she wouldn't tell anybody what happened. She said to them, I'll just tell my mom I stopped and my cousins to play. Michael ordered her to lie down and shut up. He then turned to Terry Lynn and shouted at her, She's too damn old. I told you it should be someone really young. Terry Lynn said, She was the first one I saw who was alone. Though he wasn't entirely satisfied with Terry Lynn's choice of victim, it was too late to turn back. He turned on the car's radio to find out if there were missing children's reports. This was before the government of Ontario made it mandatory to disseminate Amber Alerts on television and cell phones as soon as a child is reported missing. Tori was petrified. Terry Lynn attempted to keep her quiet. She comforted her. She talked to Tori and got to know her. Tori told her she was a fan of Disney television programs like Hannah Montana and The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. She loved Christmas and Halloween. Her favorite color was purple. The more she talked, the angrier Michael became. He shouted at Terry Lynn again. Turn the fuck around and quit talking to her. Terry Lynn continued to talk to her anyway. She did her best to calm her nerves. When can I go home, Tori asked. Soon, I won't let anything happen to you. When they arrived at the dealer's place, he left the girls in the car. He took them afterwards to Tim Hortons and left them alone in the car while he got drinks. While he was out of the car, Terry Lynn lied to Tori some more. Keep quiet. It won't be much longer. I will keep you safe. He drove, seeking an ATM in a Home Depot store. He stopped at a gas station that hosted an ATM. He withdrew cash as Terry Lynn and Tori waited in the car. When he returned, he gave the cash to Terry Lynn. He dropped her off at Home Depot. She was captured on security video, purchasing a claw hammer and heavy-duty trash bags. From there, they drove to an abandoned field in the country near Mount Forest. There were enough trees and bushes to shield them from anyone else's view. Terry Lynn and Michael got out of the car. Michael walked around to Terry Lynn's side. What now, Terry Lynn asked him, though she already knew what he was up to. His response. Well, obviously I'm going to fuck her. We can't keep her and we can't take her back. He opened the back door and got in next to Tori. For the next few hours, he raped and tortured her. Terry Lynn passed the time wandering around the field. She listened to Necro on her iPod. At one point, he told her to take Tori into the bushes so she could urinate. 
Terry Lynn took her by the hand and led her behind the bushes. She watched Tori relieve herself. Blood ran down Tori's legs as they trembled. Terry Lynn told her, I'm sorry, you're strong. Tori said, as strong as you are? Oh no, much stronger than me. Terry Lynn led Tori back towards the car. Tori began to cry. She heard the car door open and Michael calling to her. She pleaded with Terry Lynn, Please don't go, T. Don't leave me. She grabbed Terry Lynn's hand and held it tightly with all her strength. She screamed as Michael pulled her into the back of the car. Once again, Terry Lynn waited outside while Michael raped and assaulted Tori. As she listened to Negro, she was unable to hear Tori's screaming and crying. Terry Lynn knew the girl was doomed and did nothing to intervene. She just saw it as the kind of thing that happens to the weak. The way she saw it, praying on the weak was necessary. She experienced it every day for years. She saw it as a normal course of events. She was not protected and saw no reason to protect Tori. It angered her on some level, but anger was also seen by her as necessary. Angry people are armed and shielded. They get things done and motivate others to follow suit. One of the back doors was opened. Tori was tossed out onto the ground into the snow. At this point, she was dressed only in a t-shirt. She was dropped to the ground because as far as he was concerned, she was used up and no longer presented any utility to him. He crawled out after she lay helplessly in the snow. His pants were around his thighs. He poured bottled water over his hands and genitalia. He got dressed. He turned his attention to Tori now. She lay there in the snowed-on ground, crumpled and bleeding in the snow. She was crying. He became enraged. He kicked and stomped her viciously until he ran out of vigor. He was short of breath. He looked over at Terry Lynn. She claims she doesn't remember what she did next. All she remembers is that she suddenly became possessed of rage in her own right. It boiled to the surface as she watched Tori writhe half-naked in the snow. Her own memories of sexual abuse were triggered. Somehow Tori's screams and cries ignited Terry Lynn's white-hot anger. She grabbed the claw hammer. She pounded Tori with the hammer over and over until Tori stopped screaming and became inanimate. Terry Lynn stopped when she saw that Tori was dead. She took a few steps back and wiped her hair from her face. Terry Lynn walked back to the car and retrieved the garbage bags. Tori's clothes, backpack, and empty water bottles, and the hammer and Terry Lynn's coat and Michael's bloodied shirt were put into bags. Michael was ecstatic, over the moon. Having lived out his ultimate fantasy, he was overjoyed. He carried Tori Stafford's lifeless body a few meters away to a shallow dip in the field. He placed her there and covered her with rocks. He and Terry Lynn dug a small spot and put Tori's body in a garbage bag under the rock pile. After they placed the final stone, they took a few steps back to inspect the job. Michael turned to Terry Lynn and said, You're in it just as far as I am. There's no turning back now. 
Back in his car, they drove to a car wash in Cambridge. They tossed the bag containing the hammer, Tori's personal effects, and their bloodied clothes in a dumpster. They washed and vacuumed the car. There were blood stains in the upholstery that could not be washed or vacuumed clean, so Terry Lynn cut them out with a pocket knife. They changed their clothes and threw their shoes onto Highway 401 en route to Woodstock. They didn't speak much on the way home. After an argument, they agreed to never discuss the incident again. Chapter 6, Aftermath For the most part, little changed in the lives of Terry Lynn McClintock and Michael Rafferty. They did drugs. They got together on an almost daily basis. The only disruption to Terry Lynn's routine was that she helped her neighbors circulate flyers, announcing that a local girl named Tori Stafford was missing. Tara didn't fret at first when she noticed Tori was late coming home. She assumed she stopped to talk to friends or relatives. Presuming she was in their presence, she felt Tori was probably safe. However, after an hour passed since the school's standard closing time, Tara took a walk around the neighborhood. She walked to the school, but still no sign of Tori. She became more and more uneasy as time passed. No one had seen her. Tara's friends and relatives helped to locate Tori until 6 p.m. Everybody, Tara included, now knew that Tori hadn't just wandered off to play. Tori's grandmother called the police. Tori was now officially a missing person. Tori's current home and the one she moved from were both searched. Woodstock Police Detective Constable Sean Kelly was a major figure throughout the investigation. Soon thereafter, the entire town was on the lookout for Tori. The police interviewed friends, family, and neighbors. The police were overwhelmed. They worked 15 to 20 hour days. The community wanted results. Sean Kelly kept in regular contact with Tara, her boyfriend James, and Tori's father Rodney. Rodney hadn't seen Tori for several months. A few days after the investigation started, surveillance video from Tori's school was released. Tori was seen leaving the school's property with a dark-haired woman wearing a white coat. A friend of Tara's saw the video and told her she thought the woman looked like Terry Lynn McClintock. Having known her well, Tara watched the clip and agreed that the woman looked like Terry Lynn, from whom she had just bought pills. Four days after Tori's abduction, Terry McDonald called Detective Constable Kelly to tell him she believed the girl in the video was Terry Lynn McClintock. After taking a look at McClintock's file, the police discovered a parole violation, and she was taken into custody on April 12, 2009. Terry Lynn was held at Genest. It is a youth detention center in London, Ontario. She and Michael remained in contact. They spoke on the phone whenever they could. They exchanged letters regularly, sometimes as often as three a week. They both knew that a murder charge could be looming. She consoled him, promising to take the rap if their culpability was discovered. She decided his life was more important than hers. She told him that she was just an 18-year-old junkie. She felt his life showed more promise. They contemplated some way to help her escape. If they did, they would live as fugitives like Bonnie and Clyde. They would be together forever. They also formulated plans to implement if she was questioned in the Tory Stafford case. He told her to say they had been miles away window shopping at the time. 
Another false alibi he proposed would be that they visited Fred Astaire Dance Studio in Oakville, as he felt he had natural ability as a dancer. They discussed other alibis. Their last visit in person was on May 12, 2009. They sat in the common room planning on what to do if they were accused in the murder. He grabbed her face in both of his hands and kissed her. He chuckled softly and said, You'd do anything for a little bit of love, wouldn't you? Though Tara became certain that Terry Lynn McClintock was either responsible for the murder of Tori or at least the last person to see her alive, people familiar with Tara were skeptical. Given Tara's history of a drug use, many suspected her. News media were parked in front of her home at all hours. Once a day, usually at 1 p.m., she would step out for an impromptu press conference. For a woman with a missing child, she was surprisingly jovial, smiling, and laughing. Spectators thought her conduct was strange and inappropriate, considering what was going on. They scrutinized her statements. She told them she took a limo ride with a man who claimed to have information about Tori. She also said she was in contact with psychics. Suspicions of Tara, Tori's father, and stepfather led to polygraph tests. Tara failed when asked two questions. She stormed out of the police station when she was accused of withholding information. Despite her behavior, she was rolled out as a suspect in her daughter's murder. Her neighbors saw the footage of the abduction and agreed there was more than a passing resemblance of the woman in the video to Terry Lynn McClintock. McClintock cut her hair short, claiming to have gotten chewing gum caught up in it. It was long in the video. Some neighbors surreptitiously shot video surveillance of the McClintock home. By early May 2009, America's Most Wanted profiled the case, which included a sketch of the woman in the video. Tara McDonald used her daily press conferences to beg spectators to stop suspecting her and look for Tory. Four days later, she read an open letter to Tori. She implored her to stay strong. Tara and Rodney fought in front of the press. He criticized her lack of depth, and she assumed his tears were due to guilt from being an absentee father. Police brought women out and examined their gates to see if they walked like the woman in the video. Terry Lynn was pulled from her cell to examine her gate. She was questioned. The next day, she was questioned again, this time... Over the course of several hours, she confessed. Everything from the planning stages of the murder to the act itself and the aftermath were detailed. She cried frequently as she related the story during interrogation. On May 20th, Michael Rafferty was brought in for questioning. Immediately after, he was arrested. He shivered and cried for six hours, though he denied having had any involvement with the crime. The police told him Terry Lynn confessed and that they had DNA evidence, but he wasn't fooled or didn't show it. Terry Lynn helped the police locate Tory's body. On July 21, 2009, the body of Victoria Stafford was found. Terry Lynn and Michael Rafferty were charged. Michael Rafferty was charged with first-degree murder and kidnapping. Terry Lynn McClintock was charged with kidnapping and for being an accessory to murder after the fact. Chapter 7, Sentencing. During her trial, Terry Lynn McClintock confessed her culpability in the death of Tori Stafford. She did not dispute any of the facts brought before her. 
she apologized to Tori's family. On April 30th, 2010, she was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after serving 25 years. Her plea bargain was slapped with a publication ban. It was lifted when the Supreme Court refused to hear a plea for an extension. Michael Rafferty's trial began on March 5, 2012. He pleaded not guilty to all charges. Prosecuting attorney Kevin Gowdy began his opening statement with a warning to the jury. They would hear and see some of the most horrific things they would ever bear witness to in their entire lives. Terry Lynn McClintock testified against her ex-boyfriend. Her focus was not on what he did to Tori, but what he did to her and what he was capable of doing to others. She described the crime in graphic detail. She said that by testifying, she would help to prevent other such incidents like what he put Tori Stafford through. She didn't convince the gallery of her victimhood. It was she who, after taking Tori to urinate, brought her back to be violated and beaten once more. It was she who pounded her to death with a hammer. It was she who joined in when Michael kicked at Tori's tiny body. She made it clear that it was she who delivered the final blow that led to Tori's demise. Michael did not take the stand. Closing arguments for the defense were held on May 7, 2012. Rafferty's lawyer did what he could to convince the jury that McClintock was the mastermind of the whole affair. It did nothing to convince the jury of Rafferty's innocence. On May 15th, Michael Rafferty, after hearing victim impact statements, was sentenced to life without parole, plus 10 years. While in prison, Michael launched appeals, asserting that Terry Lynn was the mastermind and that he was merely an accessory. Terry Lynn has settled into her new life as a convict. She is as tough as always. She was slapped with a new charge for attempting to kill an inmate. The Canadian public's outrage at Terry Lynn's conduct did not end with her conviction. News broke that she was being transferred from a typical federal maximum security prison for women to an Aboriginal healing lodge. After a heated confrontation between federal politicians during question period, the ruling was reversed and McClintock was remanded once again to a standard federal prison. She is currently serving her sentence at the Edmonton Institute for Women in Alberta, the kind of place where human monsters of the female sex belong. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.